Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew, chapter 14, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Uh, Matthew, chapter 14, starting in verse 22. While you're turning there, uh, Joe already prayed for... um, uh, Benita, as she is having surgery tomorrow, I also will pass on to you. The Fanslers are very grateful to the people in the congregation who helped them with their move. They recently moved, and they're thankful uh, for your help in that. Some of you have served in that way. And uh, they also last weekend celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary. So it's been a busy week, month for the Fanslers, and uh, are, they're appreciative of your friendship and support. Now, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse... 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried, they said, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down into the boat walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. I have gotten out of the habit of reading the Sunday comics, but if you have read them for many years, you certainly know the name Family Circus. I confess, uh, Family Circus has been around for 60 years. I have never found Family Circus to be hilarious. Sometimes it's sweet, often it's sappy, sometimes it's accurate. Most of the time, it's maybe worth a polite chuckle. I don't know. But there's themes that have been around Family Circus for 60 years, and one of them is the recurring picture of Billy, the little boy, wandering around the neighborhood, and his path is traced with black marks like a pirate map. Here's an example. Look at this one uh, example uh, from a little bit of go. Um, it, it's probably too detailed and small for you to see. It's okay. It's a tiny comic on a big screen. In the upper left-hand corner, Billy's walking home with Grandma, and he says, let's take a shortcut through the park, Grandma, and she does. She walks straight down the sidewalk, straight down the middle of the park. Billy, on the other hand, wanders. <clears throat> He visits all the places in the park. He talks to all the people. He gets on the swings. He plays frisbee. He feeds squirrels. He does everything in the park that there is to do. And then at the end, Grandma says, remember, the shortest distance home is a straight line, Billy. And he says, yes, but it's the least interesting, too. Uh, 
This, I think, Billy's wandering ways is a pretty decent image for how most of us follow Jesus. We wander, we meander, we get distracted, we forget, we stumble, we get lost. Sometimes we intentionally walk from the path. And we just read a passage of Scripture that is meant to help you process that reality because it packages together the sort of life of following Jesus that we aspire to and pairs that with the reality of life of following Jesus. If you haven't learned yet to put them together, to understand how the difference between the sort of life we want to live as followers of Jesus and the sort of life we do live as followers of Jesus, if you haven't yet come to understand that that gap is bridged by the mercy of God, then you are uh, set for a life of great discouragement. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe it will help you understand some of the challenges that you will face Uh, should you become a follower of Jesus and turn and trust in Him. At the center of this passage stands the Lord Jesus, and His words are almost at the exact center of the words that I just read to you. Jesus turns to the disciples and He says, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. There are three sentences. These are three sentences that I would like to embed deeply into your brain This morning, I want to change the way that you think with these three sentences from the Lord Jesus. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, before we get there, let's take, uh, remember here how we got to this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. We're about halfway through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in it for several months. And remember the theme that we have been tracing through Matthew. It comes to us from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is going to miraculously appear again. Matthew 28, 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All, we've been thinking about the all words in this passage, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, all of my commands. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew wants to teach us. We've been studying this. Jesus is the one with all authority, and he commissions us to go to all nations and, and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded, and we go with the, the assurance of Jesus' presence. That's what we're, we're trying to learn as we unfold these uh, chapters. You remember how Matthew set up. There's the introduction that tells us about his birth, his genealogy, and then there's a conclusion at the end, his crucifixion, his resurrection, that long conclusion. And in between, Matthew builds his book around five major teaching units that, that he has. There's a, we've looked at three of them, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on Mission in Matthew chapter 10, and then the Sermon of Parables in Matthew chapter 13. And in between those teaching units, are miracle stories and conversations and uh, little lessons that Jesus gave that often reflect back on the themes of the, the teaching units. This section that we're in reflects back on the Sermon of Parables. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus said he began to teach in parables because in response to a terrible rejection from the Jewish leaders. They had said to Jesus, 
We do not believe you are the Messiah. We do not believe you are God's son. You are in partnership with the devil. And Jesus turned in Matthew chapter 13, and he told the people that the kingdom that they were expecting the Messiah to bring would unfold in an unexpected way. It would not come in the way that they thought a kingdom, the kingdom would come. Some people refer to Matthew chapter 13 as uh, unveiling to us the, the, the mystery form of the kingdom. I'm tempted. I did not do it yet. But I'm tempted to say the three sermons we've looked at so far, right? The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on Mission, and the Sermon on Mystery. And that would be a literally beautiful. But I haven't done it yet except this morning. So, uh, uh, the, but the, the, the kingdom is going to unfold in, in an unusual, unexpected way. And these accounts that we read of Jesus, the things he does here, tell us that despite the rejection that Jesus experienced, he continues to serve and he continues to teach and train. Not on the political, national, global level that, that the, the Jews might have thought their Messiah would do, uh, uh, kind of in the backwoods with large crowds, but, but large crowds of unimportant people. Uh, you should think about that when uh, you read the news. We Christians make the news. We make the news uh, regularly. We usually make the news when one of us does something particularly boneheaded. And often when one of us does something terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, we deserve the bad press that we get. And it makes the news. But you should remember... That though there are names that make the news, Christians who get in the headlines for doing terrible things, you should remember the unnamed people, thousands, millions of followers of Jesus who are faithfully, quietly serving him and others. They won't make the news, but this Sunday there will be thousands of Sunday school teachers who will sit around very short tables with four and five-year-old children and they'll lead them in praying for things like lost cats and sick grandmas. And they'll do that faithfully. And the reason they pray for lost cats and sick grandmas is because they want their children in their classroom to know that there are no small re prayer requests before God. If God is infinite, every prayer request is small. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that's big in comparison to God. And there's thousands of Sunday school teachers who are praying this morning for lost cats and sick grandmas. And there are thousands of followers of Jesus this week who turn lights on at soup kitchens and change sheets at shelters and open community centers and uh, conduct funerals and do counseling with broken marriages and, and host foster care homes. And they won't make the news. They won't be impressive headlines. But... Just like in this passage, Jesus is at work. Jesus is still at work. Remember that when you see the news. This passage, these uh, sections, this, these chapters that we're in also contain for us descriptions of disciples and they are struggling. They're trying to figure out what it means to follow this sort of Messiah as this kingdom comes in this unexpected unfolding way. And their struggles in following Jesus are compounded by their own doubts, their jealousies, their confusion, their own failings, um, their own troubles. 
R.O. Bletchman is an illustrator, and uh, he wrote a book several years ago called Dear James, Letters to a Young Illustrator. And listen to what he said in this paragraph. Preliminary drawings and sketches often are discouraging things, pale shadows of one's bold intentions. Seemingly nonsense, they're especially dispiriting for beginners. Is that what I did? The novice might ask. And I consider myself an artist? Speaking for myself, but also for other illustrators, I'm sure, my trash basket is full of false starts and failed drawings. There should be a museum of failed art. It would exhibit all the terrible art that would have ended up in trash bins and garbage cans, lost and unknown to the public life. This section of scripture, you could almost describe it as the museum of failed discipleship. Here are Jesus' 12 closest followers, and they are flawed men, but they're working on it. They're trying. Their arguments are so petty, and their misunderstanding is so great, we marvel sometimes that Jesus stuck with them. You you, you see these men and what they do and what they say, and you think, the only way these guys are going to make it to heaven is by the grace of God. And, And in their mistakes, we're supposed to see our own mistakes and our own reliance on the grace of God. Now, uh, let's, let's dig a little bit more deeply into this very familiar story. There's three scenes in this passage. The first one is Jesus walking on the water, and that scene ends in verse 27 with those words. I hope you didn't forget them yet. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. That's scene one, Jesus walking on the water. Scene two is Peter trying to walk on the water, and he goes swimming instead. And then the third passage, the third scene, is the miracles that happened at Gennesaret. What I want to do is I want to show you this morning how Matthew intends to connect this, uh, these scenes to your life under three headings. First, we're going to talk about the faith we want. We're going to talk about the faith that we want. This is the way these verses describe we, the way we want to follow Jesus. This is gold medal, championship, blue ribbon, grade A, top quality faith. It's what we aspire to two in these verses. Uh, Some of you like to watch, some of you like to play and like to watch golf. And sometimes when a golf tournament is on the air uh, during a particularly slow moment, (laughs) it's golf, they're all slow moments, but during a particularly slow moment, sometimes the commentators will pick a particular swing, the the leader, let's see, the guy who's ahead of everybody else, um, the, the, the the camera will have, have caught his swing, and they'll take the time to analyze the swing, and they'll show you his posture and how he swings. And in real slow motion, they'll evaluate everything about the swing. And if you're an aspiring golfer, you look at it and you say, wow, a, a, a perfectly executed golf swing is a thing of beauty. And you'll look at it in, in awe, and you'll also think to yourself, what is he doing that I don't do? What can I pick up from him that I don't do, that I could add to my game that would improve it? Here in these passages is this beautiful image of following Jesus, and and we're supposed to say, wow, what can I do like that? This is the sort of faith that is born out of this scene of self-revelation from the Lord Jesus. Jesus is going to reveal the disciples, reveal himself to the disciples in a significant way that it's, gonna, it's supposed to shape how they walk and how we walk too. 
Let's look at some of the particulars. So verse 22 begins, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Uh, Jesus, he's hurrying here. The word made is kind of forced. Jesus has happened in a hurry all day long. And all of a sudden, he's in a hurry. He seems to be getting them going. Why? Um, he, he, well, it seems like maybe he's ready finally to pray like he wanted to originally. He came to the solitary place to pray. It was interrupted by these crowds, maybe. Or if we read the Gospel of John, in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, or really over the 20,000, uh, uh, at the end, that crowd of 20,000 people was ready to crown Jesus king and lead a revolt, a revolution against the Romans. The disciples, that's not God's plan. The disciples are revolutionaries on hair triggers. They don't need this king talk. So Jesus is hustling them out of the way before they get caught up in the revolutionary fervor. Then he dismisses the crowds, and he goes up on a mountain to pray, the text says. I wish he'd taken one of the disciples with him, just one person, so that we could hear what it's like for Jesus to pray under these conditions. I want to know what he prayed about and how he prayed. Did he pray for his disciples who didn't understand that he could feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men and their families with five loaves of bread and two fish? Did he pray about his own circumstances because Herod is getting more interested in what he's doing and and he's feeling some of that, that pressure, so did he pray about that? In John 17, this is the longest passage of scripture in the gospels that we have of Jesus praying. He spent a lot of time praying for his followers. I wonder if he spent time here praying for the people that he had just served. You know, they they come to him with broken bodies, and Jesus instantly heals the broken bodies. But, you know, Jesus, I'm sure, can see in them more brokenness than they're even, maybe they are aware of. A little mother brought her son with a deformed foot to Jesus, and, and he can straighten a misshapen foot But I wonder if Jesus at this moment in time was praying for that mother because he saw in her a harshness that is is so detrimental to young children. And maybe he he saw a father who was there kind of hanging out a little bit on the edges and Jesus is praying for a distant father who, who he wants to come a little closer to his family. Or maybe some of the teenagers that were there in the crowd who are wondering if they're ever going to get married and if there's anybody who will really care for them and if they'll ever have a happy family. Maybe Jesus is praying for them, those people that he had just served. Dale Bruner says it's significant that Jesus is praying after he ministered. We usually think about praying beforehand. But did you ever consider that maybe the most important day of the week for you to pray for your Sunday school class is on Monday? Maybe the most important time to pray for your Awana clubbers is on Thursday, after the fact. Don Carson uh, wrote a wonderful little book a few years ago called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Don Carson grew up in in, uh, Canada, in Quebec, and his father was a pastor uh, of a church there in the days, 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, in the days in which 50 people in a church in Quebec was a megachurch. And Don Carson says he remembers on Sunday mornings his father would preach to a gathering of 12 or 15, 16 people, and then they'd go home, and while his mom was preparing lunch, 
um, his father would be in his study, and his father would sit in his chair and pray and pray for his congregation, the people that he just prayed for. Oh, Lord, that they would learn what he had taught them and that they would apply it and that they would live their weeks in trusting Jesus. Your Monday prayers for your Sunday school class may be more important than your harried Saturday night prayers for your Sunday school class. So Jesus is praying, and he prays for hours. We know that because there are a couple time pointers in the text. Verse 25 says, shortly before dawn. So he dismissed the crowd after dinner, and he prays until shortly before dawn. Your translation might say the fourth hour, which is Roman reckoning before between 3 to 6 a.m. So shortly before dawn works fine as a, as a translation. It's early. He's prayed hours. The other time marker could be in verse 24 when it says that the boat, Jesus had put the disciples in a boat and sent them across the sea. It was a considerable distance from land. Your translation again might say many stadia. A stadia is, uh, one stadia is 600 feet. Is that right? Yep, 600 feet. Um, The Sea of Galilee was five miles across, 61 stadia. So um, if they were several stadia, they, they could be a couple miles from shore. And it would take a while to get there against the wind in a, in a boat. He spent hours. Jesus prayed for hours here. While he's been praying, the disciples are struggling because the wind is coming against them. They're sailing west, and the wind is, is uh, blowing in their faces as they're trying to cross the Sea of Galilee this way. It takes a long time to work your way uh, across a contrary wind. And there's waves causing them trouble. It's the rainy season, prevailing winds in the, in, um, the rainy season in Palestine come from the west. Now, that's helpful to notice details like that because it helps us understand the Gospels. The Gospels are filled with details like that. I am right now uh, listening to a biography of Leonardo da Vinci. I have a goal sometime in my life when I get a dog to name the dog Leonardo because I think Leonardo da Vinci would be a great name for a dog. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Luke is thankful. Anyway, so um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, the great Renaissance painter, he left 14 paintings uh, we have uh, that he did, and uh, many of them show biblical scenes. And when da Vinci painted a biblical scene, he often put in the background fountains, European architecture, clothing, things that were not common in Palestine. So they're inaccurate in that regard, either because da Vinci did not know what ancient Palestine looked like, or he's, he has an artistic vision and he doesn't care. He, he's got a purpose in painting the picture. He wants to, to convey a message in the painting, and the, the details aren't that important to him. The Gospels, though, are different than a da Vinci painting because they're written by men who are able to fill in the details. They were eyewitnesses. They know, they know about the prevailing winds in the rainy season in Palestine. They know to say things like in verse 19, where Jesus has the people sit down on the grass. They know that during rainy season, there's grass on the ground. There wouldn't be during the dry season. They know these details because they're firsthand witnesses to these events and can write with these details like this in them, in the accounts. I mentioned that because there's a lot of people who believe that the Gospels were written 
not even by first century Palestinians, but by people who lived far away in time and, and a space from Jesus, that the Gospels were written and these stories were created to fill in, to backfill the story of Jesus, who people were starting to worship as the, the king, as the son of God. That's not true. The Gospels would not be that detailed if that were the case. The wind is blowing, the waves are rising, and it's happening, notice, in the context of what Jesus told them to do. I mentioned this just briefly. There are some people who are under the impression that if you're following Jesus, then you'll have smooth sailing in your life, that suffering is a sign of disobedience, that if you're struggling, it's because you're not obeying God in some way and you just need to straighten up and, and you'll have smooth sailing. But notice, even in this passage, Jesus, they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, and it is slow going. Winds, waves, they're already frightened and anxious a bit. In the, bit, in the midst of obeying Jesus. And in the midst of that, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, reveals something about himself to the disciples. And I want to think about this act of revelation. I want to point out to you that this is, uh, well, uh, just before dawn, walking on the water, Jesus comes. Now, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about what's going on here. Mark Twain and his wife were one time in the Holy Land uh, uh, 150 years ago. They were on a tour. They were staying in the city of Tiberias, right in the Sea of Galilee, and, and they looked out, and the, the moon was bright, and the weather was perfect one evening. So they walked down to the shore, and they saw a man sitting there in his rowboat, and uh, he said to him, Mark Twain said to the man, how much would it cost for you to take my wife and I out on the Sea of Galilee? We'd love to go sailing uh, this evening in this beautiful weather. And the man with the rowboat looked at Mark Twain and saw his fancy clothes and gave him, in that time, the outrageous price of $25. $25 for a sail in the Sea of Galilee. And Mark Twain looked at him and said, Now I know why Jesus walked. <laughs> in 2006... There was an article published in the Journal of Paleolimnology. You probably all subscribe. <laughs> but just in case you don't, the, uh, paleolimnology. Limnology is the study of lakes. Paleolimnology is the study of old lakes. And there is a journal dedicated to paleolimnology. Anyway, in this article, there was... Uh, um, Two men wrote an article about a phenomenon they believed happened in the Sea of Galilee. They believe it happens every 1,000 years or so. They argued that atmospheric conditions converge in the Sea of Galilee uh, that are astounding, very rare, but happen every now and then. Atmospheric conditions come that can produce ice flows on the Sea of Galilee. I'm sure these men were trying to rescue this story uh, they buried it instead. They said, they speculated that Jesus was not walking on the water, but that he was sliding across the Sea of Galilee on icebergs that had formed under these unique uh, conditions in the Sea of Galilee. I would believe this, that story. I do not have the faith to believe that story. Can you imagine... Imagine yourself trying to walk across the lake, uh, jumping and skipping from ice flow to ice flow. Would it be graceful? Would anybody excuse it for walking? 
how many times would you get in the water, right? And if you got in the water, how easy would it be for you to climb back up on an iceberg so that you could keep going? Huh. It's a miracle. This is a miracle. It's a revelation of the Lord Jesus. It's a revelation that points us in, in three different directions. It points, revelation that points, first of all, back. It's revelation that points back. We've already seen some of the allusions in Matthew chapter 14 to uh, the Hebrew scriptures, allusions to Moses and Elijah and Elisha. Remember, just like Moses, uh, Jesus feeds the people in the wilderness, and then he ascends to the mountain to meet with God. Then there's similarities here between, more similarities between he, in this passage and the story of Moses. Um, uh, in the story of Moses, uh, after God, through Moses, rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they go through the Red Sea. They pass through the water. And here comes Jesus walking on top of it. In Psalm chapter 77, there's a, a, a poetic description of the, pass, uh, of the exodus of going through the water. And look what Psalm 77, 19 says. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 14? Or um, the, the text mentions dawn. It's just before dawn when the Israelites are, are marching through the Red Sea, just before dawn that they step out and the, the Egyptians start to follow them into the water and the water comes crashing down on them. It's just at dawn that God shows up to rescue his people from the Egyptians. Uh, Jesus introduces himself to the disciples with the same introduction that God gives to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God says, say, I am has sent you. Yahweh, I am has sent you. And when Jesus shows up in Matthew 20, uh, 14 verse 27, he says, it is I, that's the translation, literally it says, I, I am, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Jesus here is identifying himself with the God who rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's identifying himself with the Hebrew scriptures, with the God who walks on the water. Look at Isaiah 43, 1 to 3, and see how this is lived out in this passage. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am... I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jesus is identifying himself with the God who rescued them from slavery and who walks in the water, and the disciples understand it at least a little bit. Verse 33, they bow down and worship him and say, truly, you are the Son of God. This is a revelation that points backward. It's a revelation that points forward to resurrection weekend. Alistair Roberts points this out. This is foreshadowing in the Gospel of Matthew. Think about Resurrection Weekend and what it was like. On Friday, Jesus is crucified. He's buried. He's uh, away from the disciples, and the disciples are alone. And they're battered, and they're buffeted, and they're scattered, and they're afraid. They spend all day Saturday that way. Jesus is gone. He's abandoned us. 
But on Sunday morning, before dawn, he shows up and they think he's a ghost. And he has to say, don't be afraid. It's me. I am. How common is it? Think about this in the Gospels, in the Bible. How common is it for God's people to think that God has abandoned them, that he's left them alone? Do all those accounts are in the scripture because the Holy Spirit knew that there would be moments in which you, would fe you, you feel that God has abandoned you? It points backward, it points forward. This is a revelation of Jesus that points to you. These are three sentences that are supposed to show up and are supposed to shape you in moments like this when you feel buffeted and battered and scared and alone. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Jesus had said this already back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. He'd said it to a father who'd brought his uh, demon-possessed son to him. Jesus says, take courage. Uh, uh, actually, the translation in chapter 9 is, take heart. Cheer up. Cheer up. Uh, I am, he says, take courage. I am. Why should we cheer up? Because Jesus is who he said he is. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In the New Testament, I am and don't be afraid are often connected. The expectation of the revelation of Jesus in this passage is that his presence and his power would shape us. It would be the defining factor that everything would look different because we know he's with us. He's part of every scene. He's got a seat at every table. He's in every meeting. Did you have a hard conversation this week or an appointment that you didn't really want to keep but you, you kept anyway because you were supposed to? How would that conversation have been different if you had remembered the power and the presence of Jesus? Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. This is the faith we aspire to that, that is shaped by these sentences. And it's a faith for a little bit that's lived out in the city of, uh, of the region of Gennesaret. In verse 34, the disciples they, and Jesus cross over and they get to Gennesaret. And, and notice, so uh, he gets out of the boat and the people there recognize Jesus. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus, but they recognize Jesus. And then notice the alls in this passage. So uh, when the men of that place, verse 35, recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Here's a group of men who know what to do when Jesus is in the house. Go get your sick people. Bring them because he will heal them. He will help them. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. We aspire to this. We aspire to this sort of faith. We want it said of our elders. They are always confident in the promises of Jesus. They always believe him. We want it said of the women in our church when they face dire circumstances that the first thing they do is they turn to the Lord Jesus because he's the one who said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. We want that to be true always in all circumstances of all of the people in our church. We want the sort of faith that is shaped by this self-revelation. Take 
Courage. Oh, take courage. It is I, Jesus says. Don't be afraid. That may be what we want, but it's not often the way that it is. Let's move on and talk secondly here about the doubt that we express, the doubt we express. Here's our reality. I'm not commending this doubt. I'm not praising it. This is, I'm just saying it's normal. Verse 28 begins this unique scene with Peter. In the section of, of Matthew, there are five unique scenes with the Apostle Peter where he speaks and does things that are not recorded by other Gospels. We'll talk about why that is at some other time. But he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Why did Peter think that he could do this? Back in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus gives authority to the disciples to heal and to cast out demons. Maybe Peter's thinking, I could have that same, if Jesus is walking on the water, I should be able to walk on the water. And Jesus says, come. That's all he says. He doesn't give me any specific instructions. Be careful. No, just Come. A theologian would want me at this point in time to point out to you the power of God's Word. God's Word has the power to create what it commands. And Jesus says, come, and in that command is the power for Peter to do what what Jesus has commanded him to do. This is why we walk by faith. We take up the commands that God has given us and we walk by faith in confidence that the promises, that, that, that the power to do what God has commanded is inherent in the command itself. That's how powerful God's word is. Peter walks. He gets out of the boat and he walks. And the rest of the disciples are like, look at Peter go. And, and you know that Andrew, James, and John are like angling to be next, right? That's how these boys are. Uh, you suppose Peter said before he got in the, out, out of the water, watch this? I mean, come on. Just, he's egging these, on, these guys on, right? I don't know how far he got. Um, on the one hand, you want to be impressed with Peter. None of the other disciples tried this. He got at least far enough for, for Jesus to be able to reach him when he started to sink. Uh, this is... The, the emphasis, though, of the text is not on being impressed with Peter's faith. The emphasis on the text is Peter's failure. He sees the wind. He sees the waves. He thinks about the 140 feet of water that are beneath him, and he starts to sink. It's not hard to apply this. You've walked in Peter's soggy sandals, haven't you? He turns his attention away from Jesus. This is our constant temptation to turn from Jesus and be intimidated to attribute more power to the troubles and the challenges and the worries and the damages and the sin that is around us, to to attribute more authority and power and influence in our lives to those things than to the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, cheer up, and Peter says, I'm terrified. And Jesus says, I am. And Peter says, yeah, but look at this. This is terrible, all these things that have happened. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And Peter sinks. Jesus uh, attributes this to doubt, he says in verse 31. Why did you doubt? He calls him little faith. It's a a title in the passage. Same thing Jesus gave the, the title to the disciples when they were in the, the boat uh, during the storm, when Jesus was sleeping, he called them little faiths. 
James little faith, John little faith, Peter little faith, here's Peter little faith showing up again. Uh, The word doubt in this passage means trying to go two different ways at the same time, or it means uh, serving two masters. You will have moments like this. This is Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship following Jesus means taking up the battle to reframe what we see. What do you see? I have an app in my phone. Maybe it's new, a new feature of my camera app. I'm not sure. But I've noticed that when I try to take pictures, and I'm terrible at it, but when I try to take pictures, there's a little sensor in the, in the camera, that, uh, in the phone, that, that tells me when my shot, is, my picture's going to be the best. So there's a little gold circle that'll come up, and it'll say, best shot. And uh, it's like a prize. And, 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 I, and I'm a little compulsive here, so I, I want to get the best shot, right? So I take my phone, and I move it, move it around when I'm trying to, to, to get the best. And, and I talk to my phone like I'm 93 years old. And I, oh, 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 to get the best shot. Peter, get the best shot here. Who's in the frame? who's in the frame, should be the one who says, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. What's your frame? What's in your frame? Followers of Jesus encourage one another when we gather together on Sunday mornings that we sing about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus and we pray to the Lord Jesus and we read his word so that we put him in the center of the camera of what we see. That, I suppose, leads me to the third thing, uh, third way that this passage connects to our lives in the Savior that we have, the Savior that we have. Peter starts to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me, which is not a very elegant prayer. It's not well thought out. He didn't have to write this down. Lord, save me. Uh, Bruner says, Jesus is the Savior, however imperfectly sought, of all threatened but praying disciples. I'm grateful that the Lord Jesus reached out and picked him up first and then talked to him about his faith instead of saying, hey, little faith, what are you doing down there? He rescued him first and then, then helped him, talked to him about his doubt. It's no accident that what Peter says here is so basic to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because what Peter says here is at the beginning, it's, it's what all followers of Jesus have said that is the beginning of their faith, the beginning of walking with him. Remember that we continue the way we began. How did you begin as a Christian? Before you were a follower of Jesus, you were alienated from God because of your sin. You were lost and broken and suffering. And Jesus did not merely reach down his hand to us. He himself came down and became one of us. And he lived the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death for sin on the cross, for our sin on the cross, bearing the wrath of God. And he rescues all who turn to him and say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. That's how you began. That's how you became a follower of Jesus. 
I remember, we, we all started here. I remember singing an old gospel song. We don't sing it very much anymore. Uh, let's see if this sounds familiar. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now saved am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Do you remember singing that song? It's exactly what happens in this passage. It's how you begin as a follower of Jesus and how it's, it's how you continue, especially with your meandering, wandering, doubting, shrinking back ways. Lord, save us. Save us. You, cry, you cried that at the beginning. You'll cry at the middle. You'll keep crying it until the day that the Lord Jesus returns and takes us to be with him forever. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus. Hear what he says. Take heart. Take courage. Cheer up. It is I. Don't be afraid. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are glad to speak to the Lord Jesus our uh, speak to you through the Lord Jesus, our risen Savior. Lord, we confess to you that we often walk in Peter's soggy sandals. We are distracted by the troubles and challenges that are around us. We wander, we meander, we walk in doubt and fear. Sometimes, Lord, we're just overwhelmed by the, uh, the own, our own failures and the, the, the sins that we have done that have brought such trouble into our lives. We confess to you our wandering ways. We are grateful to you for this account, from this, the, this revelation of the Lord Jesus to his disciples, giving them greater insight into who he is. And, and I pray that you would help us as we gather together this morning, some here and some online, and some in the fellowship hall, that, that as, as we have, have gathered, that you would remind us of your supremacy, that, that it, your greatness, might be what shapes us in moments in which we feel buffeted and battered and scared and alone. Cement these things into our minds. Jesus is... God in the flesh who's come to rescue and redeem us. Help us not to be afraid. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.